Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and tonight we're actually covering a Victorian-era adjacent story, one of the most famous con men in history. And I bet a lot of you are familiar with this story, as I was myself when I first set out planning this episode. But throughout my research, I was surprised to learn that I made a lot of assumptions about this person that turned out to be not true. I assume this person was some sort of criminal mastermind who evaded authorities while hiding in plain sight. But no, they were just a common thief who had no endgame in sight, who was just wheeling and dealing at breakneck speed, solely relying on their persuasive and charismatic personality to succeed and fool many, many people. And that is frankly even more fascinating to me. This is the story of Charles Ponzi. But first, a Victorian society tale. Since we're going to be talking about money in this episode, I thought it would be fun to visit the cost of living in the Victorian era. Now, just like today, this varies widely depending on where you live. But for our purposes, all of the sources I used for this reference prices between the years 1870 to 1875. They are in U.S. dollars and are kind of a mix of locations, including the Pacific Northwest, New England, and state of New York. So here we go. We're going to start with housing, where room and board for a man was $5.69 a month and only $3.75 a month for a woman. Supposing you don't want to rent, though. A 32 by 40 foot four room house cost about $700. A 16 by 22 foot two room house cost about $300. If that's still too steep, an 8 by 10 foot shanty home consisting of one room with a dirt floor could be yours for $25. Coal to heat your home and cook would run you about $80 per year. We'll continue with some basic furnishings for your home, including chairs for $1.25 each, a bed, bureau, and commode. They all come as a set, I guess. That will run you $15 and a cook stove for $25. So far as clothes, most people except for the super wealthy were making their own clothes. And for that, you would buy fabric, which was sold per yard. But just to give an idea of the cost of some catalog items you could order, for the ladies, for example, one hoop skirt, a bustle, and one hair braid would cost you $1. I don't know what they mean by hair braid exactly or why this is a set, I just know they apparently came together and they cost a dollar. Moving along, a silk parasol cost about a dollar as well. One heavy plaid shawl cost $3 and one lady's plain gold locket cost $1.50 and the price jumped up to $2 for an enamel gold locket. For the gentleman, a set of two white undershirts cost a dollar, colored cost $1.25, a necktie, quote, designed to supersede all other methods for fastening the bow to a turned down collar cost only 10 cents, a dozen pairs of Levi Strauss blue jeans cost $13.50, I guess we bought those in bulk back then, one suit cost $10, and one pair of shoes cost 98 cents. For food, they stock their pantries a lot differently than we do today, but I try to include things we might still be buying today, such as roast coffee at $0.42 cents per pound, brown sugar or white sugar at $0.10 cents a pound, rice at $0.11 cents per pound, milk at $0.08 cents per quart, a dozen eggs at $0.30, cents, roasting beef at $0.19 cents per pound, soup beef, only $0.07 cents per pound, and beef rump steak at $0.29 cents per pound. Butter, $0.39 cents per pound, cheese, $0.17 per pound, and potatoes, $1.02 a bushel. We have a new Patreon to welcome this week. Welcome and thank you to our newest member, Lorena. I am so glad you're here. 
If you would like to learn more about the Goodnight for a Murder Patreon, you can do so on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. Charles Ponzi was born in Lugo, Emilia, Romagna, Italy on March 3, 1882. His family had once been wealthy, but in recent generations, their wealth had faded. And by the time Mr. Ponzi was a young man, the family was more so struggling to keep up appearances with their still well-off contemporaries. It was still understood, though, that Ponzi would attend college, and he was accepted at the University of Rome, La Sapienza. However, he was less interested in studying and more interested in running around with his rich friends, frequenting bars, cafes, and the opera. Four years in, he was unable to continue paying for his education and was forced to drop out, not having earned a degree. While Ponzi was enrolled at the university, he kept hearing stories of young Italian men like himself who had gone to America and were able to send back or return to their families in Italy with small fortunes. Ponzi's family agreed that at this rate, the best thing for him to do might be to strike out for America and see what he could make of himself. And that's exactly what he did. On November 15, 1903, he arrived in Boston, Massachusetts with $2.50 in his pocket. That's a little more than $80 in today money. He had left Italy with more, but had managed to gamble it away during the voyage. He quickly picked up English and spent the next few years traveling throughout the Northeast, working everywhere from grocery stores to insurance companies to repairing sewing machines to restaurant work. He never lasted anywhere long, though, partially due to a bad habit of petty theft and shortchanging customers. In 1907, he found himself in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, where he became acquainted with a man named Luigi, also known as Louis Zarossi. Zarossi had opened a bank, called appropriately Banco Zarossi, whose clientele was mostly Italian immigrants. Zarossi hired Charles due to his smooth-talking capabilities and ability to now speak Italian, English, and French. Ponzi quickly rose to the position of bank manager. It was in this role that he realized the bank was in financial trouble over some bad real estate loans. Zarossi had responded by offering 6% interest on deposits, double the going rate at the time. However, Zarossi was funding the rates through newly opened accounts, not through profits. Eventually, this caught up with Zarossi, the bank went under, and he fled to Mexico. And Ponzi was out of the job again. After this, Ponzi found himself in dire straits. But one day, perhaps looking for work, he found himself in the empty office of one of Zarossi's former customers, Canadian Warehousing. He spotted a company checkbook laying on the desk and wrote himself a check to the tune of about $425. That's about $14,000 in today money. And he forged the signature of the director of the company. He immediately spent it, and when confronted by police about the matter, he confessed immediately and was sent to prison for three years. In 1911, he returned to the U.S., but got involved in a scheme to help Italian immigrants illegally enter the country. And for that, he spent another two years in prison. In 1917, he finds himself back in Boston where he meets and marries a woman named Rose. Rose's family managed a fruit company, so Ponzi went to work for his father-in-law, but they had been struggling for some time as well, and fairly quickly, Ponzi realized there was no future in that business either. Now, all the while, Ponzi refused to give up the dream of becoming a self-made man in America, and in 1919, he purchased a small office to run a simple import-export company out of. One day, he received a request from a business in Spain for a catalog of his services, and the sender enclosed something called an international reply coupon. 
The purpose of the International Reply Coupon, or IRC, was to cover the cost of postage to mail a catalog back to Spain. They were a way to level set the cost of a standard-sized piece of mail from country to country, and many countries participated in this. Ponzi had an idea that if he could purchase IRCs in other countries and have them sent to him in the U.S., he could exchange them for postage and sell those stamps in the U.S. at a profit. Because due to foreign exchange rates, the cost to purchase the IRCs abroad was lower in U.S. dollars than the going rate of U.S. postage. It's a form of what's known as arbitrage, which is profiting by buying an asset at a lower price in one market and immediately selling it in a market where the price is higher. And this was, and still is, perfectly legal. So Ponzi thinks over this IRC plan, and he sees no flaw with it. He was feeling pretty confident that he could for sure make a few bucks this way, but then he thinks bigger. He posits that he could offer this as a service to others and be able to keep a sizable cut for himself. Here's how one source explained it in Charles Ponzi's own words. He said, I send my cousin in Parma, Italy, $1. He exchanges a dollar for lira. With the 20 lira, 2,000 centesimi, we can buy 66 postal reply coupons, worth 30 centesimi each, the cost of a letter-sized stamp in Italy. Back in America, each of the coupons buys one stamp, face value 5 cents. I redeem all 66 coupons for $3.30 worth of stamps. The magic happens in the exchange rate. In America, my dollar buys 20 postal coupons. But if I exchange a dollar for lira and buy the coupons in Italy, then return and buy the stamps in America, I get $3.30 worth of stamps for that same $1. My profit margin is 230%. Yeah, but $3.30 worth of stamps is still stamps, an attentive listener offered. Precisely, Charles replied. So I sell the stamps at a 10% discount through my contacts with the larger firms downtown. Deducting the discount, I've got $3 cash now from the $1 I started with. Now let's say I got that first dollar from you. I will pay you back your dollar plus 50 cents entrance. Since I just sold $3 worth of stamps, I have a dollar and 50 cents for myself. I'm going to spend a third of that on my offices and processing overhead and a third on commissions and bonuses to my salespeople. And then, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to pocket the other third and take my wife for a stroll. He rebranded as Securities Exchange Company and in January 1920 began marketing his services, promising to double his client's investments in 90 days. And he did it. Word spread and soon he had more clients on his doorstep. It was at this point that he realized the actual buying and selling of the RSEs was slowing him down. He was raking in enough new investors that their payments would easily cover the interest owed to his older clients. This is otherwise known as borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, or as would come to be known today, a classic Ponzi scheme. Now, as we all likely already know, it is not sustainable. Eventually, the source of income will dry up. But all our friend Charlie was seeing was dollar signs. His initial investors were working class folks like himself, but the more investors he acquired, the more he attracted the attention of the Boston elite, who likewise saw dollar signs. In fact, as Ponzi's clientele grew, he started promising 50% interest within 45 days, whereas the going rate at other banks was only 5% annually. Had anyone actually stopped to think about the number of IRCs that would have needed to be in circulation to match the amount of money Ponzi said he was dealing with, they would have immediately realized it was physically impossible. It would have taken 53,000 IRCs to actually realize the arbitrage profits from just his original 18 investors. At its height, Ponzi's operation is said to have had upwards of 15,000 investors, meaning he would have had to have been filling entire ships with IRCs to realize the interest payments he was said to have been fulfilling. 
But for the most part, people were so blinded by Ponzi's success, no one thought to ask those questions. And Charles Ponzi and his wife lived lavishly. They purchased a 12-room mansion in Lexington, Massachusetts, completely staffed. He purchased a locomobile, which was the finest car available at the time. He purchased a custom-built limousine, fine clothes, gold-handled canes for himself, diamonds and jewelry for his wife, and commercial and rental properties all over the greater Boston area. He even brought his mother over from Italy in a first-class stateroom aboard an ocean liner to live with them. He was also able to purchase a controlling interest in Hanover Trust Bank of Boston, where his likely goal may have been to make himself the bank's president. He also set up branches in other states from Maine to New Jersey. Charles Ponzi was indeed living the high life. But part of Ponzi's past did creep back to haunt him, though, in the form of a furniture salesman who had given him some old desks and filing cabinets to outfit Ponzi's office when he first opened. Now, he was claiming those were not gifts. He had put up capital to help get securities exchange company off the ground, and now he was suing for what he felt he was owed. The furniture dealer lost that lawsuit, though. Around the same time, a Boston financial writer published a piece insinuating Ponzi's entire operation was fake, that there was no way he could be legally delivering such high returns in such a short amount of time. Ponzi sued that writer for libel, and he won. So while Ponzi did come out on top of those cases, it did bring to light that not that long ago, Ponzi was penniless. How did he really gain so much wealth so fast? A lot of people got nervous, and there was a small run on the securities exchange company. But Ponzi kept his cool and said, sure, friend, here, by all means, take your money back. I'll be here when you're ready to try again. And he paid back everyone who asked, which quelled fears and stopped the run. Shortly thereafter, the Boston Post ran an article in July of 1920 praising Charles Ponzi's business prowess and character and business sword. The same day the article ran, however, it was noticed that Ponzi met with Massachusetts government officials about his business. Now, this could have been the end right here, but Ponzi managed to hold off their audit by agreeing not to take in any new accounts while they were conducting their investigation. He knew that his books would not check out. Perhaps the Post was feeling a bit foolish, having published an article singing Ponzi's praises at the same time the government turns up at his door. But whatever the reason, the Post contacted Clarence Barron, a financial journalist and head of Dow Jones, to look in on the feasibility of Ponzi's business model. And this will be the beginning of the end for Charles Ponzi. The Post then published a series of articles that first revealed that Ponzi was not actually investing in his own company, and second, that the U.S. Post Office confirmed there was nowhere near that amount of postage in circulation that matched Ponzi's figures. And even if there was, he'd be profiting on the government, which was immoral, and as such, painted Ponzi in a very bad light. This caused another run on Securities Exchange Company, where Ponzi paid out up to $2 million dollars. But he remained cool as a cucumber, even passing out coffee and donuts to the crowd outside his office, assuring everyone that they'd get their turn to discuss their investments and withdraw if they wished. His demeanor placated and calmed the crowds, and many chose to leave their money with him. This attracted the attention of more government authorities, though, who now started actively auditing Ponzi's books. And as you can imagine, his records were not meticulous. Most of them were in the form of individual index cards with investors' names on them. So while there was a full-fledged odd happening, it was slow going. But they are going to get to the bottom of things eventually. So now Ponzi's goal is to stay afloat long enough to come up with something for when the bottom falls out. So he hires publicist William McMasters. McMasters, though, sees through Charles Ponzi immediately, sees there is no way he can support him as a publicist, and in August 1920, takes his story to the Post. 
In it, he called Ponzi a financial idiot who did not seem to know how to add and noted he was at least $4.5 million in debt. Very quickly now, Ponzi's house of cards begins to crumble. The Massachusetts bank commissioner ordered Hanover Trust where Ponzi held controlling interest and had taken several large loans from not to cash any more checks out of Ponzi's accounts. Then, state officials invited Ponzi note holders to come forward to the Massachusetts State House to furnish their names as part of an investigation against Ponzi. It didn't take much to read between the lines after this that if people who Ponzi owed were being asked to take part in an investigation, they were not going to be getting their money back. Another story is published in the Post uncovering Ponzi's involvement in the Zerosi bank scandal and a subsequent time in prison. Shortly thereafter, the bank commissioner seizes Hanover Trust as the government audits reveal that Ponzi is at least $7 million in debt. Rumors are flying that Ponzi is going to be arrested any day, but before that could happen, Charles Ponzi turns himself in to federal authorities and is charged with 86 counts of mail fraud. The fraud was sending correspondence to his investors informing them that their investments had matured. This spelled the end of Hanover Trust Bank, including five other banks who lost a total of $20 million or $207 million in today money. At the urging of his wife, Ponzi pled guilty and was sentenced to five years in prison. He was released three and a half years later, after which he was immediately indicted on state charges of larceny. He actually tried to sue the state over this as he thought he had a deal with the state where if he pled guilty and served time for the federal charges, he would not face charges at the state level, and this would be double jeopardy. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was ruled that a plea bargain for federal charges had no bearing on the state's ability to issue their own charges, and it was not double jeopardy as the charges were for different offenses. He had no money to hire a lawyer, so he represented himself, and he won. For some reason I cannot find, though, they broke up the larceny charges into three separate trials, and while he was acquitted during the first trial and the jury deadlocked in the second, during the third trial he was found guilty and sentenced to 9-10 to 10 years imprisonment. Now this happened in October 1922, and in September 1925, he was actually released on bail as he appealed the state charges against him. I wish I could tell you that Ponzi was reformed after his stay in prison, but he in fact fled to Florida, where he launched a land syndicate promising 2,000% returns in 60 days on investments of swampland. Swampland is essentially worthless, and it was just a new front on the same scheme he'd run in Boston. He was indicted, found guilty, and sentenced to one year in prison in Florida, after which he appealed, posted bond, and attempted to flee the country under disguise on a merchant ship to Italy. He was found out and was sent back to Massachusetts, where he served seven more years in prison. Upon his release in 1934, he was immediately deported back to Italy, and after a few years, his wife Rose, back in Boston, filed for a divorce. He reportedly continued to try his hand at different schemes and business dealings in Italy, but none were successful. Eventually, he traveled to Brazil, working for the Italian airline Alla Littoria, but during World War II, when Brazil sided with the Allies, the airline was shut down, and Ponzi, again, was out of the job. It was during this stretch in Brazil that he wrote his autobiography, The Rise of Mr. Ponzi. I will link to it in the description here and on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. It's said that he spent his last few years of his life in poverty working as a translator when he could get work. He suffered a heart attack at the age of 65. His eyesight began failing, leaving him nearly completely blind. Then he suffered a brain hemorrhage, paralyzing his left side. He died in a charity hospital in Rio de Janeiro on January 14, 1949, and he is buried there in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Government officials never managed to fully trace or untangle Ponzi's accounts. And, as with most Ponzi schemes, his victims received very little to none of their investments back. 
Ponzi did give one last interview to an American reporter while hospitalized in Brazil, where he said, even if they never got anything for it, it was cheap at that price. Without malice aforethought, I had given them the best show that was ever staged in their territory since the landing of the Pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. The name Ponzi became so notoriously intertwined with that type of fraudulent investment scheme he perpetrated that it would become forever known as a Ponzi scheme. If you head on over to Instagram at a goodnight for a murder, you can see some photos of the infamous Mr. Ponzi. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. For the bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode, did you know that Mr. Ponzi's Ponzi scheme was by far not the first Ponzi scheme con run in America? Before Charles Ponzi, there was Sarah Howe, and I have her story as the bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at A Goodnight for a Murder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. My name is Kim, and to accompany episode 27 about Charles Ponzi, I'm going to tell you the story of fraudster Sarah Howe. Little can be confirmed about Sarah Howe's early life, but from what we can gather, she was born in Providence, Rhode Island in about 1826 or so. It is reported that she married a total of three times, though those reports were often made by people who did not like Sarah, and as such, we cannot be quite sure if we can trust them or not. I'll share them with you either way, though. Her first marriage was said to have been to a man named James Solomon, though she may have been forced to have the marriage annulled due to racial segregation laws. It's reported her second husband died, and her third marriage in 1852 was to a man named Florimund Howe. They were married in Manchester, New Hampshire, after which they moved to Boston, Massachusetts. Sarah earned a modest income as a fortune teller in Boston. In 1825, she reportedly spent several weeks in jail for taking out several loans secured with the same collateral, but she appealed and the charges were overturned. Now, there are no reports or testimonies about Sarah's character during this time, but I'm imagining...